Hello everyone, Santier here. Redcoat here as well. So today, as I alluded to at the end of the uh, last podcast, mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about my gaming influences. Those of you who have braved the sibilance-ridden first episode... Lots of S's. Lots of S's. It was kind of painful when I was re-listening to, to figure out what we had said. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might remember that we talked about our gaming influences some then, but they really were kind of played through very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seemed appropriate to, uh, to the both of us to talk about some of the games that we really want to talk about a bit more. So I kind of want to talk about my gaming background, games that have left a, a strong impression on me, and uh, sort of what I've gotten from them, why they've left an impression, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so it'll be a little bit of a, a gaming history, gaming lessons that I've learned, and that sort of thing. I've written down a handy-dandy reference of a long list of games. Uh, one of the other things that I've realized, and that I think will become apparent at the end of the next podcast, yeah. is just how much divergence in experiences and influences Redcoat and I have. And I'm going to blame that a little bit on why we keep coming back to the same examples of Super Mario 64 and Dark Souls. Yeah, because that's where we impact cross, basically. Those are two games in particular that hit us both really strongly, and also, we we share a lot of experiences on them. We consider them both to be classics in their own way. Yeah. So the first game that I want to talk about, because I put it on my list first, is the original Doom, mm. also known as Ultimate Doom. This was sort of id Software's big breakout game that put first-person shooters on the map in a major way. Yeah. Uh, Wolfenstein 3D, another game that I'd played, is never quite as fond of it, only a few weapons. What was it about Doom? Yeah, so Doom has a number of interesting things. Uh, Now, I played this uh, on my dad's lap Mm -hmm. because I was like six years old. Yeah, I remember the stories. Um, Yeah. He he moved and you shot, was it? Yep, he moved, I shot, and picked the weapons. One of the the big things with Doom, though, that I come back to is, A, I feel like I hear sound effects from it all the time. (laughs) But B, the way those levels were designed is really interesting. And now it comes out of a restriction that they had Mm -hmm. due to not being able to have spaces overlap each other. Right. Basically, any given room was defined as heights. Mm. And you couldn't have two heights. You could only have one height at any given location. So you couldn't overlap anything. And that led to some very interesting sprawling designs. Mm -hmm. But they also gave you some super crazy high move speed that makes it so that way you get through the levels in a very timely fashion. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's something that I miss in games. Like being able to get through the world quickly. Yeah. Being able to uh, be like, and you're going through it and you don't feel like there's this slog of distance. Yeah. That's something that I feel like games make big worlds and then it takes you forever to get across them and that's really annoying. Doom is is more of a, a fond memory for me though compared to one of the games spawned off of its engine which is Hexen. <laughs> for those that are unfamiliar with it, it was published by id Software but developed by Ravensoft. Um, they did a Heretic also which is more of a fantasy port of Doom in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hexen really did its own thing. It did a hub world rather than a more linear progression. It had a lot of puzzle elements. But it's really a lot of the Narvasad mm-hmm. about Hexen that I really cling to. The way that the levels were presented and feel with the strong saturation and yet eeriness, the mysteries that are going on, or just sort of the, the sense of the atmosphere. And there's a lot of atmosphere in a lot of this stuff. And I have so many areas in that game that I think to and I'm like, 
I want more areas and games that feel like this. Mm-hmm. There is a swamp with a lot of mist, and it's kind of got greenish water in a lot of it, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of mist in the area, and there's kind of a, a castle mm-hmm. in in this area. And there's, so there's a lot of areas that are kind of tight, and then there's this, sort of this waterfall and swamp with this mist and this castle and this drawbridge that you go across, and just that whole feel of that area was something that I really, really wanted to see again. And I remember in some of the previews of Dark Souls 2 in, oh, I'm blanking on the exact name, like the Hunter's Wood or whatever, mm-hmm. the area outside the Undead Purgatory yeah. um, had a sort of similar feel, but it needs more fog. Mm-hmm. And then there's that foggy area with the stupid enemies that also kind of, but not quite gets there. And it's just an experience that I want again in the game. There's also another area that is kind of a cathedral. Mm-hmm. And again, they had very high saturation levels in this game. And so many modern games are so desaturated. Yeah, yeah. I think the art of high saturation, high atmosphere, but not comical or cartoony games has kind of been lost a little bit. It's interesting because we basically kind of split to where either you're one or you're the other. You're not in somewhere in between. Yeah. Very extremes. But continue onward. Yeah, so it's a lot of that sort of setting stuff that that I really take. And then also there's a lot of impact from sort of the main characters that's impacted other stuff, but um, that's less game relevant. Yeah, so Um, moving on to your next one. MechWarrior 4 Vengeance. So this is a game that I played a lot, particularly when I had some surgery to remove a cyst from my wrist. I remember playing it with a joystick um, so as using the joystick with my right hand mm-hmm. and controlling the speed with my left elbow because it was my, my left wrist that had been operated on. And uh, I just have strange memories of that combined with the smell of like uh, iodine, I think it is, the, mm-hmm. that you often get as kind of an antiseptic. And um, that game is a game that I adore for its customization. Yeah. And it's, it's really, in my mind, kind of the first game that I fell in love with because of customization. Mm-hmm. One of the big things for me is I like varying experiences. And I like games that uh, provide me customization options that lead to that. That allow me to explore what my options are, how they combine, how they can interact. And that kind of draws into probably my most major game mm-hmm. in, in many ways, which is Guild Wars 1. Ah. Uh, this game was phenomenal for customization. The story, frankly, is not amazing. It's not Shakespearean prose. Uh, I'm not even sure why that's considered the highest praise, but <laughs> that's uh. that's another thing entirely. Uh, but I really got into the story because of how much I love the mechanics of that game. They did such a good job of distinguishing all of the different classes uh, from each other, mm-hmm. but also along the interplay. You could you picked a primary, and then you could pick a secondary. The way that build system worked yeah. is, I think, something that should be copied more mm-hmm. because it was a very interesting way of allowing limits and experimentation. Mm-hmm. To briefly explain how it works, you have approximately eight attributes that you can put points into. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first point costs one, then two, then three, then four. You can put up to 12 levels in, mm-hmm. and that costs 97 attribute points to fully spec into. Yeah. And by the time you reach max character potential, you get 200 attribute points, which they aimed at being fairly early in the game. Yeah. And the primary character progression after that was getting skills. Yeah. Because you had a skill bar, eight skill slots, mm-hmm. so you had to pick which eight skills you wanted. Skills were generally linked to an attribute, and their effectiveness rose as you increased that attribute. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as you may have figured out from my brief description, you cannot max every attribute. You yeah. can max two of them 
and have a few points left over to raise another to up to three. Yeah. And you had runes, which was something you had to add to your armor that you could increase one of your primary professions attributes, your main profession. Uh, yeah. Professions are what they call their classes in that game. By one, two, or three. If you went by two or three, you took a health detriment. Yeah. You also had a headpiece that would give you plus one to one of your primary profession attributes. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of figuring out what your runes were going to look like to be able to hit breakpoints on skills. A lot of figuring out how much skills required certain attributes, things like that. Yeah. So there was a ton going on with customization, a ton of room for experimentation. Uh, a lot of room of saying, oh, well, this is how I've always thought about how the game works. But what if I tried something differently? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a healing profession in that game, which is called the Monk. And uh, when Guild Wars 2 was announced, they're like, we're not having a healing profession anymore in this game. I'm like, hmm, I wonder how feasible it is to make a party. Because you could have heroes were basically AI entities that you could outfit with skills. Yeah. So as the game progressed, they added the ability to have these. And then they're like, populations dwindled. They add more and more capabilities. So you could have a full party of you and then your, your seven heroes. Yeah. So that's eight people for those that math. Anyway, figuring out that layout, you know, I was able to go, oh, I am able to make something viable where I spread out the healing and party support responsibilities across everybody, and I don't need a dedicated healer. Yeah. And that was something that was a cool challenge to be able to experiment with and say, okay, I can successfully do this. Yeah. And I learned a very important lesson that way, which is spreading out core functionality among more things allows it to not get bogged down as much. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you have just two healers, which is the common allotment, they would be spending all of the time healing, and if both of them are healing to other people, the other four people in your party aren't getting healed. Yeah. So when you spread it out and half your party is able to heal people, even if some of them aren't as dedicated, all of a sudden there's a lot more sustainability. Guild Wars 2 is important to me, not so much because I enjoyed the game all that much. I don't like a lot of the changes they made. But because of that experience, I did a ton of analysis. And that was really the first game that I spent a lot of time analyzing and mm. digging into. Mm. Uh, so I can give that game a lot of credit for a lot of the game analysis that I've wanted to do as a result. Yeah. Or, or learn how to do as a result. Because I needed to figure out, why don't I like this game? I played it for several months, and then just one day I realized, I am not having fun with this. And I'm like... I want to have fun with this game. It's beautiful. The world is really cool. They've done a lot of interesting stuff, but it's not fun. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why. Uh, it turns out it's mostly because I feel like they got caught somewhere between two different game genres with their combat and build systems. It's not very cohesive, in my opinion. But it's like this weird spot where I want it to play more like Guild Wars 1 or something not like how it plays, but there's going to be people who like the way it plays, and I don't want to take their game away from them. Yeah. Magic the Gathering is another very major game. Again, that customization thing comes out. Yeah. Uh, the ability to customize. And a lot of the exploration that I've been able to do with that, and, and thinking about game design also, Mark Rosewater has been a huge influence on my thinking as a game designer because yeah. he's been so prolific. I really appreciate it, and we need more people like him mm -hmm. for more genres. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot more I could say about Magic the Gathering, but that would be too specific. Yeah, the, uh, the general just it, it influences a lot of your thinking. It does, um, and, well, and it harkens back a lot to Guild Wars 1, which in some ways was an interpretation of... Uh, of the deck management idea. Yeah, of the deck management idea. The Dark Souls games, obviously, I've talked about them a ton. We know why you like those yeah. games. The um, level design is great. A lot of variety in terms of what you can do. Yeah, combat's um, cool. I mean, even the great. Narvazod is amazing. 
yeah. Though that's not really why I play them as much. I am very mechanically driven yeah. with my games, so I will latch on to the, the lore, mm-hmm. but the mechanics have to be there. Uh, a good story will not compel me to play through a game I don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, StarCraft Brood War is a major one for me. That's where I got into modding, uh, mm-hmm. as I mentioned in the, the previous... In the very, very first. first podcast. Learning about modding... And, and seeing behind the scenes, that was an area, though, where I really started flexing game design muscles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still kind of prefer playing some of my mods over the base game. Mm-hmm. I, I did some weird stuff, and that was a lot of fun community interaction also mm-hmm. uh, because of the, the modding boards that I spent yeah, a lot yeah. of time on, the, the modding forums. The Super Smash Brothers series is another series of games that I've really enjoyed a lot. They've done a lot to define what I want out of a fighting game experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I have not played very many fighting games. I I should rephrase that. I've played a number of fighting games. I have not really played a lot of fighting games because they turn me off. Their controls are intentionally complicated due to restrictions and limitations on the original consoles as far as I understand it. And then people fell in love with that and now they're trapped (laughs) with terrible, terrible, unintuitive controls. The next games that I I want to talk about are the Legend of Zelda games, uh, particularly the Wind Waker and Majora's Mask. Wind Waker had enjoyable combat, but for me, it was really about how they presented the world. I enjoyed that world, and it was more of a social experience, interacting with it with my sister. Mm -hmm. And then we had a a Lego game that we played together that was built on that. So that's a very fond, potent memory. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also the way that they did stuff with the cell shading. It's a way of showing how stylization, good stylization, Mm -hmm. can preserve the longevity of your visual uh, appearance. That game still looks good on the GameCube. And they made an HD re-release, which mostly, as far as I can tell, is slightly polishing up some of the polygons and vastly improving the lighting engine. <laughs> uh, but the core visuals are still very much the same. Mm-hmm. And that just goes to show that those hold up super well. And you can get a lot of character out of that sort of style, too. Yeah. Um, Majora's Mask, though, that one defines what you can do with NPCs when you're focused on it. Yeah. And that that cyclical Groundhog Day style of world is such... It's such a mind trip. It is, but it so changes the way that gameplay works. Mm -hmm. I really like that setup and the way that it allows you to be able to get to know characters Mm -hmm. and, and know the world in a different way. And it also let them do the stuff where when you beat a zone, it has an impact. Yeah. You beat goat or whatever, and these mountains turn to spring. Yeah. The long winter ends. You beat Odwaller or whatever he is in the forest dungeon, and the poison goes away and the swamp clears up. Mm-hmm. And then you go back in time and it all resets. Yeah. And they could do that because of that time setup. Yeah. Um, it makes those changes very much more poignant. Yeah, it does. And that's something that I really appreciate. The Pokemon games have been major games for me uh, as well. Who Needs Transitions? I've enjoyed them since they first came out. I got into them actually because of the card game. Because I had friends that were getting into the Pokemon trading card game. And that's how I got into Pokemon. I didn't understand the rules of that game properly. Uh, funny little story while I'm here. Mm-hmm. The first came with glass beads to denote damage counters. Uh, they now have handy dandy like cardboard punch outs that have tens and thirties and stuff on them. Yeah. But when they were first presented to me, it was here are glass beads. Use some of them to represent ten damage. Use some mm-hmm. of them to represent thirty damage. Now it's like here are damage counters. So potion says remove two damage counters from one of your Pokemon. My brain was thinking quite literally mm-hmm. and looked at the beads as damage counters. 
Hmm. Therefore, when I got to 30 damage, I took off three damage counters and put on one 30 damage damage counter. So one damage counter there represented 30 damage instead of a damage counter that represented 10. This meant that my potions were a lot stronger if I waited. Yeah, because if you use the potion, then you'd remove the, a damage counter that represented 30 HP. Yeah, exactly. But anyway... So I got into the Pokemon games that way, but it was really when I got into college that Pokemon became a more major thing, and that was with the competitive Pokemon leagues that we had. Uh, those were great fun. There was a lot going on with that environment, and they have given me a lot to think about in terms of shaping and forming a competitive environment because the Pokemon one is garbage. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it seriously is, and I can talk at extreme length. I'm going to talk at minimal length. Basically, there's a move called Stealth Rocks that is format warping, and everybody accepts it for reasons that are beyond me. Yeah, well, um, yeah, it's a true thing. I've also, they've set what I'm expecting from sort of those turn-based RPGs, mm-hmm. and it makes it a little frustrating for me because I don't, I don't have that Final Fantasy experience. Yeah, so it makes it frustrating for you to go back to the classic thing and see, but there's so much more that could be done here. Well, it's the strategy of the type advantages and stuff. It's Pokemon has such poignantly clear strategy yeah. of the type matchups, but then also the mechanic of switching yeah. that just doesn't exist in a lot of other RPG games where you're like, here's my set party, and I go in with this, and I'm like, uh, this is weird. Well, yeah, here's your set party, go in with this, rock their faces with some easy thing yeah and that's just not how pokemon works um shadow of mordor is the next game that i want to talk about this is obviously a much more recent game than many of the other ones mentioned but i wanted to bring it up because it does such a good job of at least beginning the efforts necessary to embrace the power of storytelling that games have and we're going to have to talk about storytelling again sometime because i have many thoughts and Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately i was not able to be part of that podcast uh, it was like, what, our third one? Yeah, it was our third one. But I have, I have a lot of thoughts about things that I want to see from storytelling in games, particularly storytelling that can only exist in games. One of the things that I love is, say, when somebody plays a game of civilization and they have their story, yeah. their history, the history of their nation. Yeah. And it's a unique experience that they're playing through. And I want to capture that concept in different genres, the different types of games, on games that focus on like a Legend of Zelda exploration sort of yeah. puzzling adventure. And making it so that you can talk about your adventure with yeah. uh, with Link as opposed to someone else's adventure with him. The closest sort of other games that have done this that I can think of off the top of my head are the Mountain Blade series. Let's say they lack some refinement and they're not entirely doing what I'm interested in doing. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that are unfamiliar, it's basically the idea that you're building up a mercenary core that just goes around and does stuff. Yeah. But I think it's really cool that's your mercenary core doing around doing the stings you agree to do for the different rulers in the area and, yeah, and yeah. whatever it is that you're wanting to accomplish in that. Um, and Shadow of Mordor is more of a refined experience that's doing that sort of thing. It's doing that sort of thing, but it feels more, um, the story that comes out of it feels more interesting. There's more impact and um, stuff like that. It, a little bit. It's a bit better directed. Yeah. Which is one of the things that's very tricky with a sort of more freeform experience is how do you get enough direction for the player? Yeah. The other thing is that I enjoy the combat mechanics significantly better. Yeah. Um, well, Shadow yeah, of Mordor does a really good job of having all of its different forms of combat work together very well. Mm-hmm. You have the dagger that has a lot of use. Yeah. And utility. Yeah. Um, and you have the sword that does its thing very well. Mm-hmm. And then you have reasons to use the bow even in the midst of more hectic combat. Yeah. Uh, and that's 
I, I liked how they balanced that also, and that I think is, is something that's very significant. Finally, uh, the last game that I have written down here that I want to talk about is Warcraft 3 The Frozen Throne. This is interesting not so much because I like uh, the gameplay of Warcraft 3, although I think it's interesting to look at what they're trying to accomplish. It's clear that they're focused more on micro and on smaller squad tactics and trying to get away from the larger armies that kind of dominate StarCraft Brood War. Yeah. And they did a lot of things to try to do that, but that's not something I particularly enjoyed. Mm-hmm. The game, to me, was more about the map editor and the custom maps that people made. As buggy and problematic as many of the things that they did with that map editor are, you have to implement a lot of workarounds, not make it leak memory like a sieve. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed a lot of the freedom and power that it presented. Yeah. And not only did it offer me a lot of different things that I could do and a lot of different maps that other people made to explore, it also was a very good demonstration of tool development and mm-hmm. the power that you could have with a good suite of tools. Uh, and that's something that also has, has impacted me as a designer. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of felt a little rushed, but I know there was a lot that I was talking about. If I were to pick out the most significant of these games, I'd probably say Guild Wars 1 and Dark Souls are probably the most significant of these. Though Magic the Gathering is certainly up there. Again, to kind of highlight who I am as a game player, which necessarily influences who I will be as a game creator. Yeah. I like variety. I like different options. And I like very solid mechanics that are very enjoyable and have a lot of respect for player skill. Yeah. And where they are games that you can get good at. Mm -hmm. uh, And then getting good at them matters. So that's kind of a lot of the stuff that I personally look for. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's stuff that I want to build in also. And then poignant atmospheres Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. is something else, like what Hexen had that I I so fondly remember. Yeah. Uh, Next week, you get to do all the talking. Joy of joys. <laughs> this was a lot of Zantir, uh going down on uh, uh, many of the games that have influenced him. Yep. When we move on to next week, we'll see uh, what influences me. But one of the things I will say is definitely, um, as you see here, one of the important things to note is that what makes a designer is their experiences in the world, but it is also the things that they take in, like with any other medium. Uh, artists uh, in painting and stuff like that, they observe other paintings. People in the cinematic area, they observe movies. They, almost any director you find, you ask them, they will have a favorite movie, a movie that defined how they went through things. And so um, as a designer, one of the things that you should ask yourself is, do you have that game? Or do you have several games that really state to you, this is why I like games? Yeah. Like I said, Guild Wars 1 defines builds, Dark Souls defines combat and world exploration. Yeah. So, with that in mind, we're going to head to the sign-off. Santier, signing off. And this is Redco, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos. <laughs>